All right, get your Bibles open if you would. We are in Deuteronomy. I'm going to welcome you to our new sermon series called Cornerstone on Purpose. And we are beginning that this week. It'll be an 11-week series. And we're going to work through what God is shaping us to become. And this is the first one in that series. So I want to invite you to open up to Deuteronomy chapter 6. The pew number, if you're using a pew Bible, that number is page 151. And while you do that, I want to encourage you to honestly think about this question. i got to prepare you, though, because a lot of times when you ask deep questions or abstract questions, it's almost like our mind can't focus on it. So I'm just going to give you a few seconds to think on it. I don't expect any of us to arrive in an answer immediately, but I want you to think on it. Why did God give you life? Have you, have you ever considered that deeply? Why did God give you life? Because knowing that answer can, cre- can create a life that is focused, effective, satisfying, assuring. In fact, let me read to you what the Word of God says in Acts chapter 13. For David, this is King David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep, meaning he died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So God had a specific will for David's life. He had a purpose for David's life. And when that was fulfilled, God brought him home. You can really extract from that, Christian, I really want you to hear this, brother and sister, you can extract from that verse that if you are living, if you are breathing, then God still yet has a purpose for your life. But what is it? What is the will of God for your life? Why did he give you life? Now, I want to take that question And for 11 weeks, expand it to the macro level, to the church level. And I want to ask this question, and we're going to try to answer it. Why did God give life to this church? In 1983, he put a desire on a a man named Rick Bradford, worked at Benny and Smith, Crayola. And a few other people started a Bible study. And from that humble beginning in 1983 sprang a church, what we call Cornerstone today. So again, I'm going to ask you to just consider with me, actually grapple with me tonight. We are really, today, we are really going to hit it off hard. What is the purpose for this church? What is God's specific will for Cornerstone? Why did he begin this church? Those are the questions we're going to try to answer. Now, we have a motorcycle ministry in this church, and I have a motorcycle, and I really enjoy it very, very much, but I have to work on that motorcycle, and there's some things that I have to do, and recently, I I own a a Yamaha FJR, it's a 1300cc sports touring bike, and every once in a while, you have to recalibrate the four cylinders. You have to hook up a vacuum sensor, or a tuner. So my brother let me borrow his up in New York. I brought it back with me. We were up there. I'll tell you a little bit later in the message. We were up there in August, Andy and I, my youngest. 
He said, you go ahead and borrow this and you could do that. But in order to get that tuner hooked up, well, you have to take the gas tank, the front of it off, and lift it up and get under it. And I had to use a ratchet wrench for that with a metric Allen socket. You have to lift that front of that tank up to get under it. And once you get up under it, there's caps on all four vacuum lines. And those caps have little tiny clamps on them. The only way you're going to get those off, really, is a needle nose plier, a pair of these. You have to reach way down in there under that tank and pry those off and not lose them, hopefully, and get those off. And then you can hook up the tuner and you can calibrate. You can change with settings. Each cylinder has a little setting and you can change and adjust those. But then you've got to put everything back together and you kind of have to reverse a little bit of the, the message or the method rather. And then at the end of it, to get these bolts back on, you have to use what's called a torque wrench. And they give you the specification for the foot-pounds. Because if you use too much force, you're going to strip the bolts. You don't want to do that because then you've got to use a special tool to even get those off. A lot of tools, four of them, just to get to that, those vacuum lines. Now I want to bring that imagery into your mind for a minute. Because I want to tell you that each one of those tools serves a different purpose. All of them are necessary. And we've got some really awesome churches around us. You've got Calvary Baptist Church. You've got Phillipsburg Alliance Church. You've got Life Church. And all of them are a unique, special tool in God's hand. They are, they are accomplishing what God wants to do uniquely through them. And they're wonderful churches. Some of you have been to some of those churches. You know they're good churches. And Cornerstone is one of them. We're a tool in the hand of God. We have a unique purpose to fulfill. Now, I have to use those tools on my motorcycle. And if I do it right, the end product is it's going to run together. It's going to run really well, actually. It's going to have more power, more fuel efficiency. And the biggest thing that all FJR owners know, it will have a lot less vibration, which numbs your hands after about 50 miles. Well, you get back to the church model for a moment, and you get back to the fact that we are all unique. Calvary Baptist, Ebenezer, Life Church, Phillipsburg Alliance Church. And it's important to understand that all of these Christ-exalting churches that I just mentioned, listen, you really have to know this. We all have the same mission. If a church invents a new mission, they're off mission. Because there's only one. And Jesus gave it to us in Matthew chapter 28. That's what every church, which is Christ-exalting and obedient, is to do. We are to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. But we're all unique. Our church is unique from any other church in how we fulfill that mission. Why? Because this is the exciting part. God contextualizes his churches. He put Cornerstone downtown. He put Calvary Baptist out a little bit more in the suburbs. And what they're working to do in the suburb, suburbs and, and Ebenezer and, and the Bethlehem area and what we're working to do are very different because we're in a different context. And when we understand God's purpose for our church and we align to it, all of us, we're going to see our church operate with a great deal of power, a lot more efficiency. We're going to be synced. We're going to be unified toward the same goal. And I will guarantee you, because I've seen it in 27 years of ministry, there will be a whole lot 
less vibration, which is what we call conflict. But how we communicate our purpose in a very clear, concise, meaningful way is something that our leadership team has been working on for months. And I'm going to read to you our purpose statement that we're actually unveiling today. The Cornerstone family of churches, we're a multi-siting church, one church, more than one location, exists to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus Christ who love God, grow together, and serve others. Now, I told you a moment ago that Andy and I went up to New York. I didn't tell you that part, but we went up to New York, central New York. That's where my mom lives. I have two brothers that live in the same town. That's where I grew up. And it's maple syrup capital of central New York. There are maple trees and harvesters of sap everywhere. And we have a close family friend, and that's where we buy our syrup. They actually make it on their 40 acres of property. And so we picked up some syrup, and I asked her a question. How many gallons of sap, that's the raw liquid that pours out of a tree in the spring, how many raw gallons of sap do you need to boil down over the process of hours to get your maple syrup? One gallon of maple syrup starts with 40 gallons of sap. That's a long, long process of boiling. So I want to use that metaphor for a moment. If we were to boil down that purpose statement, and we get it to the raw essence of it, here's where you go. One mission, but here's our contextualizing differences. We want to be a church that loves God, grows together, and serves others. In fact, I really want you to see that our ultimate aim is to bring glory to our God, which is something that Christians say a lot. I bet you've said it. We want to, we want to bring glory to God and we say that, but do we really honestly understand what it means? Let me just ask you, do you really know what it means to bring glory to God? The basic meaning of glory, it's really exciting actually. It means to be heavy in weight and opinion. Now, if you're overweight, a little bit like me, that you're going, okay, I got that one down, man. I can bring a lot of glory to God. Don't be thinking personal pounds here. In ancient times, value was measured in weight. So the heavier a bag of gold, the more valuable. By the way, you know this, right? When you were a kid and you're, and you're picking up those wrapped Christmas gifts, and when one was really heavy, didn't you automatically think, this is your costly gift. This is the valuable one. This is going to be the best one. Why do we think that? Just heaviness tricks our mind into thinking that. So God's glory in Scripture is viewed as something supremely weighty. It's more valuable than anything else. So here you go. Glory, just connect two words, weight in value, the glory of God's the most valuable thing. It's the most weighty and important thing in all of life. So here's what it means to glorify God. It means to live in such a way that it offers evidence for everybody who is seeing our lives that God is more important and more valuable to us than anything or anyone. Now there's a lot in that. Did you catch that? Listen, even if you're young, 
This is something you can get. This is certainly not complicated, but it is life-changing. If you want to live a life that is bringing glory to God, well, how you glorify God is that you live in a way that your actions, your words, speak of a God who is excellent. That when people see the way that I live, Tim Ackley, the way that you live, and they know that we bear the name of Christ, that they see an amazing God, a God full of excellencies, a God whose attributes are beautiful and wonderful. But it won't work if God is just one of the important things in my life. I really need you to know that you cannot glorify God if God is important, but there are things and people more important. You cannot bring glory to God if he's not the most important being in your life. In other words, if your life does not center on God, your life cannot bring him glory. Your words are empty if you say, I want to glorify God, but I don't want to center my life on him. The very opposite of this is true. Our actions, the way that we live, can bring reproach, can bring shame to God. We can tarnish his reputation. This is what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2. The name of God is blasphemed among Gentiles, non-Jewish people, because of you. In other words, you're living in a way that God's not even important. You're not wrapping your life around him. You're not centering your life on him. You're living the way you want in immorality. You bring the name name of God down. That's reproach. So our lives individually and our life as a church will either bring glory or it will bring reproach to God. There really is not a middle ground. There is no third option. You're either going to bring glory to God or you're going to bring reproach. And unbelievers, the world that lives all around us, they're going to evaluate our Jesus through the way that we each live and the way that our church functions. We're either going to be good or bad publicity for Jesus. We're either going to be positive or negative press for him. And our aim to be is to be a church where outsiders will say, what an amazing God. But how do we do that? Now we're really going to get to the meat of the sermon. This is all intro. We're about 30 seconds away from really starting. Some of you are already looking at your clocks. Think we're going to be fine. How do we do that? Let me read it again. The Cornerstone family of churches exists to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's the one mission. How, in our unique context, who love God, grow together, and serve others. Those are the three initiatives that we are all about. We need all of us on the same page. And with that, we're ready to look at our text. De Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's get into the Bible. We are a Bible-preaching Church, everything we say is going to try to be centered out of the Bible to the best of our abilities. And here is what verse 4 says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is Yahweh. All capitals, all small caps in your Bible for Lord, that's always Yahweh in the Old Testament. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So the very height of our purpose, the grandest element of our purpose for this church, the greatest privilege we have as a church 
is to love God with all we are. Does that make sense? That's Deuteronomy 6. Super simple. The highest command ever, the greatest commandment there is, is to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of it. And that command shall be on your heart, Moses wrote, Deuteronomy 6. It means that loving God actually should be the greatest desire of our hearts. Not just one of the desires. Listen, I think I could probably safely say, you pr I don't think you'd be here at church if loving God wasn't one of the things that your life is about. But my question, and I hope this kind of pulls you up short, like it's pulling me up short, is it the greatest desire of your heart? Is loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is, is it the greatest desire of your heart? Or let me just give you a couple alternatives. Do you love your job more? Do you love money more? Do you love your children more? Do you love your spouse more? Do you, like, do you love peace and security more? Do you love beauty more? Do you love control more? Do you love an object more? You see, whatever you center your life around will become your God. And that God will be the one you bow down to. So God says, I want me I need to be the greatest being in your life. Your desire, the greatest desire of your heart must be for me. Must love me. That's the point of this command. And he goes on, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, all of life. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. See, the Jewish people had these, these boxes called mezuzahs. And they put them on the right side of their doorpost. So if you take their door and you take the right side doorpost, along that right side, actually in the 12th century, they started to angle them, trying to solve a debate that happened between rabbis. But on the right side of the doorpost would be a box, and it would be made either of wood or stone or metal or ceramic. It would be nailed there. It would be fastened there. And inside of it was a rolled-up parchment with this exact passage on it, to love the Lord your God. And as they would enter, this is cool, right? We ought to do things like this. You should have traditions that you develop in your life, things that can keep trying to jog your heart to worship God, because as they would enter or they would leave their house every evening, every morning, it would be customary. They wouldn't leave or they wouldn't enter before they touched that mezuzah, and in touching that, they would quote Psalm 121, verse 8. The Lord will keep your going out, and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, it was a passage that reminded them of the great love of their God for them. So that it would stir their love for him. But if you have a cynical heart, which a lot of us do, I mean, I could be cynical as well. 
you might be asking yourself, why does God demand that we love him? Now, have you ever asked that? Or have you ever had somebody say, why is God so demanding that people love him? Isn't that what insecure people do in a dysfunctional relationship? We're going to try to answer that. I'm going to answer that in two main points and a couple of sub points. So here we go. Here's the first part of answering that. Why does God demand that we love him? with all of our hearts. Number one, God does not need us to love him in order to be happy and satisfied. Now, this might be new thinking for some of you, but it's actually very, very important. God doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need our exaltation. He doesn't need our love. In fact, theologians talk of God's attributes actually in two ways, and they're very simple. One is communicable, Attributes means those are the things that we share. So God's love is actually something we share because God has poured his love into our hearts, Romans 5.5. So we can share, we can identify, we can experience that attribute. But he also has incommunicable attributes. And those are, are qualities of God that are unique to him alone. We cannot share them. His his eternal nature is one of them. You and I had a beginning. Mine was November 6, 1966. Correctly, I guess, nine months before that. I think there was a snowstorm. I don't even know why I told you that. So I don't know what your date is, but you have a beginning as well. And one day, Lord willing, you're going to be in eternity in heaven. You're either going to be in eternity in hell or eternity in heaven. Come on, get into heaven through Christ, right? Belief in him that he died for you. God sent him to provide a way for you. But you had a beginning and no end. God had no beginning and no end. He's eternal. That's not something we can share. Well, one of the unique, incommunicable attributes of God is called his independence or his self-existence. In other words, God does not need us. He doesn't need the rest of creation for anything. His joy and his happiness is completely satisfied and bound up in himself. Paul said that God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God is the giver. He doesn't need to receive anything from us, not to be happy. God said to Job, who has first given to me that I should repay him. Whoever is under the whole heaven is mine. So God already owns everything. He's the creator. He's the rightful owner and possessor of everything. He doesn't lack anything. He never struggles with loneliness. He doesn't need a human's adoration to feel good about himself. He doesn't need a card in the mail to feel loved or a pat on the back for good self-esteem. At the same time, he takes great pleasure in all of creation. Now listen, there's a caveat to that. When creation reflects his character. He takes great pleasure in us when we reflect his character. When we bless him 
when we brag about him, when we praise him and exalt him, all we're doing is we are living like the God of Genesis 2:18, who blessed us first. That is a communicable attribute, and that brings great pleasure to God. Also, when we bless one another, when we love one another, when we honor one another, that's what God does. And when we reflect his character, he takes great pleasure. He enjoys when we live in a way that the world sees his attributes. But if he doesn't need our love, point one, why does he rightfully demand it? Point two. God knows we need to love him above all, all else in order for us to be happy and satisfied. Now, by the way, this is massively deep. I need you to get this. So I'm going to say it again. God knows we need to love him above all in order to be happy and satisfied. Now reflect again. To glorify God is to honor him above all, to make him more weighty in importance, more valuable than anything or anyone in our lives. He's given the weight of glory. That's why people, Piper, by the way, coined that phrase, the weight of glory. I think Spurgeon did too. Why? Because God deserves, as we exalt him over all else, he deserves all of that. He's our creator, which is the sub-point. He is, it is because he is the creator, we are his creation. Now, I'm going to tell you what is so difficult for American Christians. It's hard for me at times, too. So if this is hard for you, I share your struggle. God made you, God made me. He gave us life. Therefore, he owns us. He possesses us. He has the right to do with us whatever he Wants. And we're okay with that as long as what he gives us is a mildly difficult life filled with more good than bad. And we're okay with that. But what if God begins to give you and allow in your life a massively difficult life? One where you can't seem to have a job of stability. Every time you take a job, somebody's leaving and they downsize. Or you buy a house, and you were praying and praying, and all of a sudden you get in that house, and everything seems to fall apart. Or you get in a marriage, and you went by faith to the altar, and you did all your marriage prep. To the best of your knowledge, this was going to be a great partner and spouse for your life, one that God has brought together, but the marriage is full of difficulty. God, why? 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 And all of a sudden, we begin to lose the ownership principle. God is our creator. He owns us. He possesses us. He has the right to do what he wants with our lives. You know where I had to grapple with that? 1998, when we were weeks away from my father dying, that's when I had to grapple with that from cancer. God, I don't get this. I think you're taking my dad prematurely. I'm only 32, I still need dad in my life. Why is this happening? I happen to be under a massively huge oak tree when I'm pouring out my lament to God on a stone bench at Johns Hopkins University, praying, struggling with that, when God averted my eyes to the oak tree and 
took me to Isaiah when he says, I spread out my branches like an oak tree over you, and all of a sudden the balm of Gilead massaged deeply into my heart. And I knew at the beginning of that moment, God is perfectly right in all that he does, even if he takes my father. So we struggle at times with really affirming that God is our creator and we are his creation. Now, unless you worked night shift last night, then you slept. And something important needs to happen theologically in your soul, just like it needs to happen in mine. We need to wake up from our sleep and once again stop before we get going and remember, we are finite creatures. We have rechargeable batteries called bodies. And that right there separates us infinitely from the God who never sleeps nor slumbers. He is our creator. We are his creation. And he is infinitely and forever greater than us, and he does not exist for us. We exist for him. Now, if you could get that believably into your soul, your life is going to be a lot different going forward than perhaps it was in the rearview mirror. We exist for him. He does not exist for us. He's not obligated to us. We as a creation are obligated to him. And we are to become a God-centered people, and he is the, to be first in our lives above everything and everyone without exception. And if someone were to ask you to explain what is Cornerstone Church like, we've got to be able to honestly answer. We are a church seeking to love and adore and exalt our God above all else. Anything less is unacceptable to God. It cannot be acceptable to you, and it cannot be acceptable to me. Our creator is owed all glory, all priority, all love, all worship, and all exaltation. Yet there is a seemingly odd truth about God, about why God wants us to love him above all else. Point number two, this is the second sub-point. He's a jealous God. He is a jealous God. Now what does that actually mean? Because I bet there's deep down in you, like there is in me, a bit of a shudder at that. Sounds kind of negative, doesn't it? Something we're never supposed to be. Didn't your parents teach you to not be jealous? I mean, when we think of things like when she was jealous when she saw the house that their new friends live in, and that's not a good thing. Or he was filled with jealousy when his coworker got the promotion he wanted. Or she is so jealous that her boyfriend cannot even say hello to a girl without her getting angry. I mean, jealousy is seemingly always negative. So why do we, and why does the Bible attribute it to God as one of his attributes? I'm going to turn this on its head. You ready? This is completely different than what a lot of people think. God is jealous for our joy, for our life, for our blessings. Because it's in that life and joy that we bring him the greatest glory. What we love, we will pursue for our happiness and love 
And to love anyone else more than God is to pursue that thing or that person for your happiness. Friends, listen, some of you have tasted this. Some of you experienced this. Whenever you pursue anything or anybody above God, it will end in despair. It always does. That's what the nature of an idol is. An idol is something, it's a God replacement, something you center your life around. It, it is what you hope and worship and expect to get that you don't believe God will give you. That's what an idol does. And John Calvin says, we all manufacture idols from our hearts. I do, you do. There's a reason that Jesus gave this odd command in Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He is saying that if you want to follow God through Jesus Christ and be his disciple and be the child of the father, you and I, we must love him most. Not an option. And if we're to be a Christ-centered church, then he must help us love and exalt him as our highest pursuit in our lives. And only when we love him more than anything or everybody can we experience the life that God is so jealous that we have. How do we grow? And that's the final point of this message. How do we grow in our love for God? We need the help of God to love him. And exalt him above all others. Now let's just be honest for a second. Can we all do this? And I'm going to tell you right now, I think we're all on the same level playing field. You're not looking at a lead pastor that has figured it out. How to love God more than anything and everybody. And now everybody at Cornerstone, you got to scramble to be like Tim Ackley. Don't even think that for a second. I struggle with this just as honestly and forthrightly and maddeningly as anybody else in this room. Let's all put ourselves on a level field. None of us have figured out exactly how to love God most in our lives. We struggle. We need help. But it's an absolute truth what I'm going to tell you. And I would encourage you to write it down. You hear me say it all the time. God will always give you the ability to do what he commands. What a horrible God he'd be if he didn't. And our God is not horrible. He will always give you the ability, the power to do what he commands. Christian, when you believe that, as I do, your life will be filled with courage, peace, and confidence. God commands us to do something that you and I, we cannot naturally do. We cannot love God with all of our hearts, souls, mind, and strength. Not in our own power. And he doesn't tell us to reach down deep and master the strength to love him above all else. He fills our hearts with that desire. He doesn't want children who obey him without loving him. Haven't you ever had parents or child do what you tell them? But they're angry, they slam the door, they do it begrudgingly. That doesn't bring you any pleasure. That doesn't show you the, the good character that you're wanting to cultivate in their hearts. God doesn't want children who obey him without loving him. He wants our obedience, listen, you're going to hear it next week, to spring from our love for him. 
God filling our hearts with a desire and the capacity to love him more is the work of the gospel. And we must pray for one another if that is to be the reality. Listen to what Paul wrote. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge in all discernment. we got to pray for this. Listen, if you're not loving God, if right, even right now in this message, God is bringing to your mind things and people that you love more than him, and that's unacceptable to him, then your right response is not walk out of here in despair and say, I'll never be able to do that. I'm a terrible Christian. That would be terrible preaching, and that would be terrible receiving of preaching. You walk out of here in repentance. God, I cannot do it in my power. Therefore, I can only do it in your power. I need to repent, and I'm asking you, fill my heart with a love for you so that I want to do what you want me to do. He wrote in Ephesians 3 that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Look at the results. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the church, all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's the work of the gospel. And to gain that power is prayer. And it's so encouraging to know that God wants our hearts to fill with an ever-expanding love for him. And his power is at work in our hearts and in our church to make that happen. Listen, can you picture a church made up of people whose hearts are expanding for their love of God? A church that all understands, each one of us, that, that God brought us together as a church. Why? To bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus Christ who love God, grow together, serve others. If we can live like that by the power of the gospel because we're preaching it and we're praying for each other, can you rightly hear the echoes of Deuteronomy 6 here at Cornerstone? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This would be a church worth worshiping with. Because we'd be exalting God as our highest pursuit. Now, I'm only a couple minutes from being done, but do you remember that animated Christmas classic, The Grinch? When his heart began to grow, I'll quote the line, and what happened then well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And then the true meaning of Christmas came through, and the Grinch found the strength of ten Grinches plus two. And now that his heart didn't feel quite so tight, he whizzed with his load through the bright morning light. This is what God does, Christian, in our hearts. They keep growing. They keep expanding. It's God's will for each of our children that there would be days where our hearts grow three sizes. And the true meaning of why Jesus Christ was born would come through because God showed, 1 John says, how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might 
have eternal life through him. That's the love of God for us, and our hearts respond to that good news by growing and increasing to love him more than anything or anybody and to exalt him as the greatest being in our lives, and our love is greatest for him than anyone. So Christian, pray that God enlarges your love for him, your creator. Pray for our church, that our church would expand in our love for God, that we would love God by exalting him as our greatest priority. Amen.